We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or, of course, on your computer for live streaming, CITR.ca. My name is Gavin Walker, and we're going to, as we did last week, we um, began our, uh, which is something we do every September to welcome everybody back to uh, well, we all know what September is about, right? Work, school, all that kind of stuff. And to celebrate that, um, I always feature two albums at this time uh, of year to uh, welcome everybody back to school because they are uh, not only musically interesting, they are educational as well. And last week we had the distinguished Julian Cannonball Adderley, one of the finest uh, alto saxophonists ever to grace the planet, band leader, and communicator. And uh, he gave you his um, history of jazz, a brief history of jazz music in his own inimitable fashion. And this week we're going to turn our attention to one that, uh, another tr- jazz show tradition and feature the great. Maestro Leonard Bernstein. Mr. Bernstein will tell you what is jazz. He'll also tell you what isn't jazz. And rather than um, a historical um, trip across all the different styles of jazz, uh, Mr. Bernstein takes a different uh, direction and gives you more, takes the music apart and gives you an idea of the things that make jazz music so unique. So in effect, an album like this, even though it was uh, recorded uh, many years ago, um, is very contemporary because uh, a lot of people don't know about jazz music, and uh, it is a very... Um, it is a unique form of music, and uh, Mr. Bernstein, of course, uh, treats jazz music with incredible respect. Unlike, um, it used to be classical musicians kind of looked down on jazz uh, because, well, I think because it's a player's art rather than a composer's art, and um Jazz was featured, uh, you know, in bars and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it, of course, it eventually moved into concert halls, but um, there was always that reluctance to, to and, and also the almost a snob thing to look down on jazz musicians. Well, you know, they're not as good as we are. Uh, we, we can do this and uh, this kind of thing. Bernstein never had that. Um, I guess perhaps being an American, um, he, he uh, grew up with jazz all around him and uh, um, just loved music, period. And, and he communicates that in this recording. So we're going to hear um, the in- inimitable Leonard Bernstein uh, narrate what is jazz, and there's going to be recorded examples by such people as Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and, and um, Miles Davis and all kinds of people. So 
without further ado, this is the second of our kind of back-to-school uh, education and entertainment jazz feature. And, of course, the person involved and the mover and shaker here is America's great maestro, the late Leonard Bernstein. What is jazz? Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. <laughs> Charleston bands, to swing bands, to boogie woogie, to crazy bop. more. It is all jazz, and I love it all. I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression, in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental, no matter how self-pitying the words are. And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. 
It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. Well, then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art, and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is. And so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. You hear that dissonance? 
But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. They are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. The last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note, la, sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now, just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, let's hear that same blues played without them, using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching, because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Hop, 
two, three, four. Hop, two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. One, two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. Two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong. Like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four. Now those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, there lie shorter and even weaker beats, and when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater, since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Okay, boys, thank you. As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once putting an accent on a weak beat, and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation, put a wallop on the weak fourth beat, and remove the strong fifth beat entirely. And we get one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, It begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz. Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like I can't give you anything but love, and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm letting over, baby. Dream my wild. Now the trumpet version.
but the Negro voice has engendered other imitations too. The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, various symbols, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. There certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight that is, without any jazz shading at all. Not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line. So it goes, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice 
that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter. My man don't love me treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane Now if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a 12-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line, I will not be afraid of death and bane, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. Listen to that sound. My mama says I'm a reckless man. Daddy says I'm wild. My mama says I'm a reckless man. My daddy says I'm Did you notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer? It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes. These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen.
By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three-part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first. making 16 bars, and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not, since most people don't remember it too well anyway. And then the same old front strain all over again. And it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins.
yet another. They are all different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way. could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is. Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. The business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus all stops out with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. see how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, 
when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down. There is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938. Remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore, except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now, whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat, and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. <laughs>
what we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings. The music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled, considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing, that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on, finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop, arguments arise, and factions form. Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists, so in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general, trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on, you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music but we'll use them in a new and different way.
Well, we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. Our jazz feature this evening, the great impresario and maestro, one of the most uh, influential and uh, incredibly talented musicians of the 20th century, the late, great Leonard Bernstein, narrating what is jazz. And I hope that uh, you were able to, uh, even if you have heard this recording before, there's always something new that you may want to explore or look at um, or something you've missed. Uh, and of course, if you've never heard this recording before, well, uh, now you have heard it. And um, it's uh, an extremely important um, piece of work and uh, a very good um, educational uh, kind of recording and, and also very entertaining. Um, some of the uh, comments, of course, are, are um, unintentionally funny. Um, you know, the jazz musicians now wear horn rim glasses and, and have crew cuts, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. But what he was essentially saying is that uh, jazz musicians today, um, in comparison to the early musicians, are, of course, have um, much more academic um, education, and that's especially true of uh, uh, the new generation of musicians. They're coming out of colleges, and, and uh, they're extremely um, well-educated. And, of course, uh, it, if they decide to pursue jazz music, well, all well and good. And if they pursue classical music, that's fine, or folk music, or rock, or whatever. Anyway, hope you enjoyed um, Leonard Bernstein. What is jazz? Now, that last example, um, before Mr. Bernstein came in and closed the uh, album, was by Miles Davis and his first great quintet. And that was recorded uh, in 1956. And, of course, that had Miles Davis on trumpet, uh, who was so identifiable. And the tenor saxophone was John Coltrane. And, of course, the rhythm section, one of the very best ever. Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and the great Philly Joe Jones on drums. Miles Davis's first great quintet. And they explored um, the tune that uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein analyzed, and that was uh, Sweet Sue, and played a very kind of abstract version of that tune. All right, you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. It's uh, just 10 o'clock, and we have a couple of uh, important messages, and we're going to come back. We're going to take you to Montreal, to the Chez Paris, which was uh, one of the great 
clubs in Montreal. They had everything there. They had uh, uh, shows uh, like showgirls, uh, dancers, that sort of thing. They also had um, just show bands and singers and a whole variety. It was like a variety club, but they also had jazz music. And guess who played at the Chaperie? February 7th, 1953, was none other than Charlie Parker. And he performs with uh, some resident musicians. We're going to hear three incredible pieces of uh, uh, music recorded right there at the Chaperie in Montreal on that night, February 7th, 1953, right after these messages. And just to let you know, this is The Jazz Show, and I'm Gavin Walker. Are you starting fresh this year and looking for new, exciting activities to do with friends on campus? Did you watch theater in high school and now miss it? Feeling overwhelmed and need a break? Come and escape to another world through thrilling live performance right on campus. Celebrate with us the 60th anniversary of UBC Theater and Film's 2018-19 season. <laughs> Still need more convincing? It's only 11.50 for UBC students with your card. And bring your ticket into Kerner's after the show to get 10% off your food. Check out theaterfilm.ubc.ca today. The year is 2124. Civilization as you know it is gone. The last remaining archive of Vancouver's music, art, and underrepresented issues is the September 2018 issue of a magazine called Discorder. 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 The September issue of Discorder is out now. This month, there are pieces on Andrea Warner, the author of Buffy St. Marie's Authorized Biography. Commercial Drag, a weekly drag show for anyone and everyone. Music features with local bands Landline and Board Decor. An art feature by Nada Hayek. Live reviews of Ponderosa Festival and Poetry is Bad for You. And of course, reviews of new albums, podcasts, and books. Thank you to our advertisers, The Rio, Blueprint, The Cinematheque, The Rickshaw Theatre, East Band Graphics, SFU, Timber Concerts, the Vancouver International Film Festival, the Vancouver Art Book Fair, and the AMS. for the week. Uh, tonight is uh, partly cloudy, and then it'll be 
completely clearing overnight. You'll be able to see the stars, and then there's some fog patches going to happen as well, as is usual this time of year with a low of 9. And uh, tomorrow morning, the fog patches will dissipate and disappear, and we're going to have a nice day of a mix of sun and cloud tomorrow with a low of 9 and a high of 15. Then on Wednesday, again, it's a mix of sun and cloud, but there is a 40% chance of a shower. So with a low of 9 and a high of 16. So that's happening on Wednesday. Thursday, it clouds over completely with a 30% chance of a shower. Uh, sprinkle here and there with a low of 9, a high of 15. Then Friday, a bit of a downturn. Periods of rain on Friday with a low of 11 and a high of 14. Saturday is cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 10 and a high of 15. And Sunday is pretty well the same, cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 9 and a high of 17. So uh, we're still waiting for summer to come back. You never know. It's Vancouver, and it could happen. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus. Traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Honkameenam speaking Musqueam people. Well, as promised, we're going to take you to Montreal. Montreal in the 1950s, it was a swinging town back then. Um, There were all kinds of clubs all over town. Um, Live music was happening just about everywhere. Uh, It was, and Montreal still is a great city, but uh, really in the the 1950s and and the 40s, after the the Second World War, Montreal really boomed. And it was known as the the Paris of the North. and uh, it was it, w- it was quite a town um, back back then, and of course many of the clubs were run by you know shady characters and and that sort of thing. But that was all part of the scenario in Montreal, and some of that still remains today. Anyway, the Chaperie was one of the um, which was down on Stanley Street in Montreal, just off off St. Catherine, um, was one of the the places, um, and of course they had, as I mentioned before, they had uh, they had a show band there, a regular show band that 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 played, and they had dancers, they had singers, um, comedians, ventriloquists, you, you know, all that kind of stuff, and um, then they, they they brought in big bands, they brought in uh, you know Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and and some of the big bands, uh, and also some jazz. And uh, on February 7th, 1953, Charlie Parker made the first of his two engagements in Montreal. And uh, this one was successful. The second one, uh, which was a little later, um, there were problems. But uh, this one was good. And Charlie Parker here is going to be playing with um, three resident musicians, one of whom is a legend. The pianist, Harold Steep Wade. Steep was, um, started out as a saxophone player, 
and uh, took up piano uh, later on. He was extremely talented. Uh, Many people thought of him as a genius. Um, He did have uh, eventually succumbed to uh, a drug problem. Uh, I'm sure he and Charlie Parker got along quite well. Um, Steep died at the end of 1953, and it was one of the sad times in Montreal. Now, Steep Wade was a huge musical influence on a young man who became really famous, Oscar Peterson. Steep Wade uh, just had a, a wonderful way with the piano, but unfortunately, um, there was no recording industry in those years. And this is the only example of Steep Wade's piano playing. Um, they've tried to find other examples, and there aren't any, because uh, recording just didn't happen. It's too bad we didn't have the devices that we have now, um, cell phones and, and, and pocket recorders and stuff that can really deliver. They didn't have that stuff back then. So uh, we're just lucky that uh, these uh, recordings um, have emerged uh, of Charlie Parker. Of course, uh, Charlie Parker, one of the most significant musicians in jazz, and he is in rare form here. Uh, he is playing extremely well. I passed this recording on to my good friend Charles McPherson, and he said, wow, he said, Bird is, was really on top of his game here. And um, he is. Charlie Parker sounds so great. So we have Charlie Parker on alto saxophone, Steep Wade on piano, uh, Bob Rudd on bass. Uh, he was a transplanted American who um, moved to Montreal. And Bobby Malloy on drums. Now, Bobby Malloy was uh, played in the show band, and he never thought of himself as a jazz drummer, but he acquits himself very well here. And a young guitar player who was visiting Montreal at the time, uh, he had been playing with uh, George Shearing, the great uh, uh, pianist, um, and he was visiting Montreal, so he uh, is also evident on um, this recording, and that's Dick Garcia. On, on guitar. So we're going to hear three tunes. Actually, we're going to hear Charlie Parker's voice. Uh, he announces the tunes, and we're going to hear three tunes. First one is an original by Charlie Parker called Moose the Mooch. The second tune is one of his favorite ballads, and that's Embraceable You, written by George and Ira Gershwin. And the final tune is uh, perhaps Charlie Parker's most famous blues composition, and that's Now's the Time. So here then, is the great bird, Charlie Parker, in Montreal, February 7th, 1953, at Thank you. 
Thank you, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And for the next tune, we would like to, to care for our request. These are some very dear friends of mine here in Montreal. We'd like to give our rendition of Embraceable You. We sincerely hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. At this time, we would like to keep the show underway by playing a tune, an oldie. Uh, this was done for the Savoy label. On the Savoy label, it was released, I think, about 1945. 
It was amongst the first that was done on the Savoy, down in New York. We sincerely hope those of you that haven't heard this tune before will still like Now's the Time. <laughs> Thank you. 
I guess that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Charlie Parker, live at the Chez Paris on Stanley Street in St. Catherine in Montreal, February 7th, 1953. And uh, Charlie Parker in rare form performing with uh, mostly um, resident musicians of Montreal. Uh, We heard the great and legendary Steep Wade on piano and um, his... uh, only solo ever on on uh, any kind of a recording was on the final tune, and we heard uh, his uh, incredible piano playing. And Steep was a great uh, musical influence on Oscar Peterson, and uh, uh, an amazing musician who left us far too young. He suffered from the same problems as Charlie Parker, and Steep died in. Uh, December of 1953, and that was a shock to the whole Montreal jazz community. Anyway, uh, he was very much alive here with uh, with Charlie Parker, of course, in rare form on alto saxophone, and you heard Charlie's voice as well introducing the tunes. Bob Rudd was the bass player. He was a transplanted American that moved to Montreal, and the uh, regular drummer at the Chez Paris did all the shows and everything was a guy named Bobby Malloy, and... Um, when, when he was told about uh, uh, this particular recording, he said, oh, you know, I'm not really a jazz musician, but he sounded pretty good on this uh, recording. And if we heard a guitar, it was a young visitor who was uh, in town. Uh, he had been working with George Shearing, a very, very fine guitarist by the name of Dick Garcia. So Charlie Parker on alto, uh, Steve Wade on piano, Bob Rudd on bass, Bobby Malloy on drums, and Dick Garcia on guitar. The three tunes we heard, we opened with Moose La Mooch, um, an original by Charlie Parker, and then Embraceable You, uh, one of his favorite ballads, and the final tune, of course, was one of his most famous blues tunes, Now's the Time. Charlie Parker, mm-hmm, in Montreal. We're going to continue with some live music, but this time we're going to go to New York City to the uh, legendary Five Spot Cafe in Greenwich Village. A hot August night in 1958, and we're going to hear the Thelonious Monk Quartet with Thelonious Monk at the piano, the great Johnny Griffin on tenor saxophone in, in wonderful form on here, Johnny Griffin, incidentally, took John Coltrane's place in Monk's Quartet. And um, so he was the tenor player in that group for uh, 1958. And a wonderful bass player, steady, uh, reliable, Ahmed Abdul-Malik on bass. And the great Mr. Snapcrackle, Roy Haynes on drums. And Roy Haynes is the only surviving member of this. He's now 92 years old. And uh, he just made an appearance with the uh, jazz at uh, at, Lin- Linton, Lin- jazz at Lincoln Center um, with Wynton Marcellus and, and company. And um, if you uh, subscribe to Sirius Radio, you can probably hear that. Roy Haynes is still playing and playing marvelously. Amazing, yeah. And one day I'll, prefer, I'll uh, learn how to uh, pronounce Lincoln Center. <laughs> anyway... We're going to hear some live music with Thelonious Monk 
Um, the first tune is his own composition, of course, and it's called Nutty. And the second tune is one of his most famous ballads. We're going to hear Round Midnight. And the third tune, we get down to a 12-bar blues. But it's a different kind of 12-bar blues. And it's uh, those of you that are musically literate, it's built on major sixths. And um, the tune is entitled Mysterioso. So here then is Mr. Monk, recorded live at the Five Spot Cafe in Greenwich Village, August 1958.
Thank <laughs> you. 
recorded at the Five Spot Cafe, legendary New York jazz club in Greenwich Village, in August of 1958. That was the Thelonious Monk Quartet with Mr. Monk at the piano, of course. Johnny Griffin, the little giant on tenor saxophone, Ahmed Abdul Malik on bass, and Mr. Snap Crackle, Roy Haynes on drums. And we heard three tunes uh, from that uh, set. Uh, we began with a monk composition, of course. Uh, well, they're all monk compositions, yeah. <laughs> what, what can I say? The first one was entitled Nutty. The second one, of course, was one of his most famous uh, compositions played by everybody, Round Midnight, or if you will, Round About Midnight. And the third tune was um, uh, actually a 12-bar blues, uh, and it was built on uh, major sixths of the uh, scale, and uh, that was called Mysterioso. And, of course, it featured a, a long sermon there by Johnny Griffin on tenor saxophone. Thelonious Monk, recorded at the Five Spot Cafe. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca for live streaming. My name's Gavin Walker, and uh, I'd just like to mention a couple of websites, as I usually do every week. And uh, just to remind you that uh, these are fairly good comprehensive websites. One of them is VancouverJazz.com, and uh, there's all kinds of interesting links on there. You can spend a little time on that website, VancouverJazz.com. The other one is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society, and uh, those are the people that bring you the big jazz festival every year. They also have concerts throughout the year and uh, very special events. And they are backers of Frankie's Jazz Club, which, of course, is down on Beattie Street. And that's programmed by the redoubtable Corey Weeds, uh, the former owner of the cellar. And uh, he's been doing that for a couple of years and doing a, a great job at Frankie's, bringing in international people and, and uh, providing work for um, resident musicians. And, of course, um, Corey is heard there quite often, too, and he's well worth listening to. He's a great player. So on that website, which is coastaljazz.ca, um, that is a very comprehensive website, and uh, you can also link to Frankie's Jazz Club, see who's coming up, see who you would like to go and hear, and um, uh, if you decide to commit yourself, you can uh, book a table, um, pay for it, everything online. So that's, as I said, a very comprehensive website. So those two, vancouverjazz.com and coastaljazz.ca. And I'd also like to mention Pat's Pub as well. Every Saturday afternoon, some of our finest musicians play at Pat's Pub in the um, historic Patricia Hotel in the Vancouver's downtown east side. And um, from 3 to 7 every Saturday is some great music at Pat's Pub. There is no cover charge. And so you can sit, uh, enjoy the music. And if your budget's a little low, you can uh, nurse a beer or Coke or whatever you want. And uh, there's also fine food there as well. It's a very comfortable atmosphere. 
and uh, lots of parking around there, and it's quite safe down there. You know, some people express reservations about uh, heading down there, but you're um, far enough away from you know where. Uh, and Pat's Pub is uh, quite a user-friendly place, and of course, it's really user-friendly because it doesn't have a cover charge. So uh, check it out. Saturday afternoon, three to seven. And we shall be right back. People are really done with politics as usual. But then it's all about the competition. Every Vancouverite has their own story. The perfect time for our alternative. Vancouver's municipal election looms October 20th. Do you know who's running for city council, school board, parks board? This is a wacky municipal election, and you're going to want to stay updated. Download Seeking Office, the newest municipal elections podcast from CITR's News Collective. Find Seeking Office on iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts starting July 3rd. Timber Concerts and CITR presents Shannon and the Clams with guests Sevilla, Thursday, October 4th at the Wise Hall. Advanced tickets are available online at ticketweb.ca and are also available at Red Cat Main Street, Red Cat Hastings Street, and Zulu. We're going to take you back to 1941. Holy smoke, that's a long time ago. But this music um, is so hip and so contemporary, it, it's here forever. And, of course, it's, it's great art. And what it is is the Benny Goodman Sextet. Now, Benny Goodman, of course, was the king of swing. He, uh, he led a big band. But his real artistic side was in his small group recordings. I love his quartet, his quintet, and his sextet that he formed. Um, in the early 40s. So this was done January 15th, 1941. This is the, that's the recording date in New York City. And, of course, we have the Goodman Sextet. Mr. Goodman, Benny Goodman on clarinet with the great uh, Canadian-born tenor saxophonist, and I always liked his playing, Georgie Ald on tenor saxophone, Cootie Williams on trumpet, who... Um, was with the Duke Ellington Orchestra for so many years. Count Basie on piano. How's that? Doing a, a sideman job. Great band leader. And, of course, the piece de resistance, Charlie Christian on electric guitar. And, of course, he was the pioneer of jazz guitar. And, of course, every jazz musician has been influenced by Charlie, rock musicians, um, Jimi Hendrix used to listen to this guy all the time. Charlie Christian died young, sad to say. An amazing, amazing musician ahead of his time. Artie Bernstein on bass and Papa Joe Jones on drums. We're going to hear four tunes by the Benny Goodman Sextet. The first one is Goodman composition called Breakfast Feud. The second tune is an old standard um, by Gus Kahn and Ism Jones called On the Alamo. Um... Here's a tune that a lot of swing bands were playing back then, and it's a tune called I Found a New Baby. And the, sec and the final tune, we may hear a couple more, but the final tune here in this set 
is uh, a Goodman composition called Gone With What Draft. So here then, the Benny Goodman Sextet. Thank you. 
That's neat stuff, isn't it? Benny Goodman, recorded January 15th, 1941. That's a hell of a long time ago. And uh, yet it still sounds uh, fresh and fun, and uh, all these great musicians were, of course, very much alive and, uh, and cooking at the time. As I mentioned before, uh, Benny Goodman's small group, uh, his big band was one thing, uh, I mean, they did a lot of amazing music, too, of course, um, over the years. And he had different uh, different bands that spanned uh, many, many years, Benny Goodman did. But uh, his real um, artistic outlet was his small group recordings. And um, that's why I love these, uh, these groups that he had, uh, the quartet, the trio, and in this case, the sextet. And um, we heard... Benny, of course, on clarinet, along with uh, Cootie Williams on trumpet from the Duke Ellington Orchestra, Georgie Ald on tenor saxophone. As I mentioned before, he was born in Toronto and a transplanted Canadian. And the great Count Basie doing a sideman job on piano and, of course, the, the pioneer of guitar, jazz guitar and rock guitar, any kind of guitar. Charlie Christian, he really, really set the pace. And um, so he's heard on here, Artie Bernstein on bass, and Papa Joe Jones on drums, again uh, recruited from the Basie Band. We heard Breakfast Feud, written by Benny Goodman, then the standard on the Alamo, slowed things down a little bit, and then um, a tune that uh, was often played back in those days, uh, it was a pop tune called I Found a New Baby. And the final tune was another Benny Goodman composition and arrangement called Gone With What Draft. We're going to hear two more. And there is a slight change in personnel, and it's still recorded in New York, but a few months down the road. March the 13th, 1941. We're going to hear two tunes. Um, again, it's basically the same band, as I mentioned. However, Count Basie is replaced by Johnny Guinieri at, at the piano, and the drum chores from Papa Joe Jones are taken over by the great underrated drummer Dave Tuff. So 
he's on drums, and the rest of the personnel is exactly the same. So we're going to hear two Benny Goodman compositions. The first one is entitled A Smooth One, and the second one is a very famous tune called The Airmail Special, uh, written by Benny and Charlie Christian. So here are these two tunes. As soon as I cue them in. <laughs> Give me two seconds.
Well, we finally got to hear those two tunes after my clumsy programming, uh, but uh, we heard them both. And that was, of course, the Benny Goodman Sextet from uh, a little down the road, March 13, 1941, in New York City. Um, Cootie Williams, once again, on trumpet. Benny, of course, on clarinet. Georgie Ald on tenor saxophone. Johnny Guinieri, this time on piano. Charlie Christian on electric guitar. Artie Bernstein on bass and Dave Tuff on drums, and we heard uh, two Goodman compositions. The first one was entitled A Smooth One, 
And the second one was Airmail Special, subtitled Good Enough to Keep. And that was a co-composition of Benny Goodman and guitarist Charlie Christian. So I hope you enjoyed that little interlude into uh, Benny's Sextet, one of the great uh, small bands of jazz history. We're going to turn now to a wonderful singer from Vancouver. She's been here for years. She's performed here. Um, she's come through some incredible um, crises, including a, um, a severe health crisis. Um, she had acute myeloid leukemia, and uh, she was treated and she's all better, and she is back. Wonderful singer, great survival instincts, and an incredible voice. She is uh, really um, known by so many people internationally, but uh, she has chosen to live in Vancouver for most of her life. I'm talking about Joni Taylor. Joni Taylor has this incredible voice, she, did, she has released a wonderful album um, that was recorded after a couple of nights at uh, Frankie's Jazz Club. And uh, they went into the studio and did this album with the same band. And, of course, the great P.J. Perry imported all the way from Edmonton, Alberta, one of the uh, most prominent saxophone players in the country, or in the world for that matter, uh, and he plays alto and tenor saxophone on here. Miles Black on piano, and Neil Swainson on bass. And we're going to hear some tunes from this album. It's called In a Sentimental Mood, and we're going to begin with a George and Ira Gershwin tune called Love Walked In, and then we're going to hear a medley of two tunes um, Victor Young's Ghost of a Chance and um, Vernon Duke's great tune I Can't Get Started With You and then one of Joni's favorite ballads is the third tune and that's written by Vincent Humans and it's a beautiful thing called More Than You Know so here then is the voice of the one and only Joni Taylor Nothing seemed to matter anymore Didn't care what I was headed for Time was standing still No one counted till There came a knock, knock, knocking at the door. Love walked right in and drove the shadows away. Love walked right in and brought my sunniest day. One magic moment That love said hello Though not a word was spoken One look 
And I forgot the gloom of the past One look And I have found my future at last One look And I have found the world completely new When love walked in with you Oh, oh. 
Just for the sight of you, but baby, what good does it do? Whether you are here or yonder, whether you are false or true, whether you remain or wander, I'm growing fonder of you. Even though your friends forsake you, even though you don't succeed, wouldn't I be glad to take you, give you the break you
Whether you're right, whether you're wrong, man of my heart, I'll string along. You need me so
Well, that kind of voice is something incredible, and uh, she's lived here in Vancouver for many years and one of the finest singers on the planet, Joni Taylor. And this is from her latest album on Cellar Live, and it's called In a Sentimental Mood, and uh, it's the result of um, a weekend gig at uh, Frankie's Jazz Club, and then they went into the studio uh, after the gig and recorded this album. So these were all the tunes that she sang uh, at the club. And uh, they did them all pretty well in one take um, during the recording session because uh, everything was, well, perfect. And we heard Joni, of course, uh, P.J. Perry playing uh, both alto and mostly tenor saxophone on those uh, tunes, Miles Black on piano, and Neil Swainson on bass. And we heard some standard tunes. The first one was uh, the Gershwin's Love Walked In. And then uh, the second tune was a composite of two tunes, um, Victor Young's A Ghost of a Chance and Vernon Duke's I Can't Get Started With You. And uh, Joni sort of put them together in a, in a medley. And the final tune was the very beautiful uh, Vincent Newman's tune, More Than You Know. Joni Taylor. Enough said. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9. On your computer, of course, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're going to turn our attention now to a very fine band based in Toronto. And this is their brand new album. It's on Anzic Records, A-N-Z-I-C, and... It's led by drummer Ernesto Cervini, and his band is called Turboprop, and the album is called Abundance, and we're going to hear three tunes from that album. The first one is a tune that Miles Davis recorded on a very famous album uh, back in the 50s, and it was, the tune was written by Tad Dameron. It's called Tad's Delight. And the second tune is a Harold Arlen composition called My Shining Hour. Coltrane recorded that tune. And the final tune is a favorite of mine, written by Charlie Chaplin, and it's called Smile. The people involved in turboprop, Tara Davidson on alto uh, saxophone. And from New York, uh, he's a regular member of the band, the great Joel Fromm on tenor saxophone. William Carn on trombone, Adrian Ferugia on piano, Dan Loomis on bass, and the leader of this band, Ernesto Cervini on drums. So I hope you enjoy 
three tunes from their latest album, Abundance. And this is Turboprop playing Tad's Delight.
That's an incredible jazz group from Toronto called Turboprop, and it's led by drummer Ernesto Cervini and a whole crew of uh, superb uh, musicians in here, including Tara Davidson on alto and soprano saxophones and Joel Fromm on tenor saxophone, William Karn on trombone, Adrian Ferrugia on piano, Dan Loomis on bass, and the leader, Ernesto Cervini, on drums. And we heard three tunes. This album is available on Anzic Records, A-N-Z-I-C. And um, you can Google it, uh, anzicrecords.com. And that's it. Anzic Records, all one word. The tunes we heard, we opened with Tad Dameron's great uh, theme entitled Tad's Delight. And then uh, a wonderful uh, arrangement of Harold Arlen's My Shining Hour. And uh, then Charlie Chaplin's great tune featuring the trombone of William Carn, And that was Smile by Charlie Chaplin. So this album is called Abundance. And it's a brand new album by Ernesto Cervini's Turboprop. Good band. We're going to turn our attention now to Stan Getz. And this is one of my favorite bands that Stan ever put together. This was recorded one day after um, he did a famous album at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. It was sort of the end of a tour. And the following day after the Shrine concert, which was November 8th, on November 9th, 1954, they went into the recording studio, the same band, and um, almost the same band, and recorded this album. And um, the chemistry in this band uh, is quite incredible. And the music just flows so beautifully. And Stan uh, is at one of his creative peaks as well during, the, uh, during this year. Um, so we hear Stan on tenor saxophone, of course, with Bob Brookmeyer on valve trombone. And uh, those two guys just go together. They just, uh, musical marriage. And on piano, one of my favorites, Johnny Williams. Not the composer. This is Johnny Williams, the pianist. He's originally from Vermont. Uh, there is the John Williams composer does stuff for movies, but d- different guy. And uh, Johnny Williams, um, very, very fine pianist. Bill Anthony is the bassist. And Frank Izola on drums was asked, especially he he did play with Getz at one time and came in um, at Stan's request to play this particular recording session. And uh, he's a legendary drummer from uh, Detroit. We're going to hear two tunes. The first one is a composition by Bob Brookmeyer, dedicated to someone, but it's called Oh, Jane Snavely. <laughs> That's the name of the tune. And the second tune contains one of my very favorite Stan Getz solos. And uh, it's, it's their arrangement of the standard tune, I'll Remember April. So here then is the fabulous Stan Getz quintet. Oh, <laughs> 
I guess one could classify that as cool jazz. And uh, just the, the sound of this particular band. And uh, it was recorded in Los Angeles uh, while Stan Getz was living there. And that featured his regular working quintet. Stan Getz on tenor saxophone, sounding just wonderful, um, that particular period of his, uh, of his playing, with uh, Bob Brookmeyer on valve trombone, Johnny Williams on piano, Bill Anthony on bass, and Frankie Zola on drums. And we heard two tunes. The first one was a Bob Brookmeyer composition called Oh, Jane Snavely. And the second one was uh, the band's arrangement of um, a standard tune. All jazz musicians played this tune, written by Ray and DePaul, I'll Remember April. And uh, to this day, I still marvel at uh, Stan's uh, solo on that particular tune. Stan Getz. He was known as The Sound. That was his nickname among other nicknames. (laughs) We won't get into that. We're going to conclude uh, this edition of The Jazz Show this evening. I'd like to thank you very much for being out there. Those of you that have listened to the whole show, great. Uh, If you just um, listened to part of the show, cool. Um, That's wonderful. On behalf of myself, Gavin Walker, and The Jazz Show, As we all know, Vancouver is um, the most expensive place to live in the country, and maybe in North America. It costs a lot of money to live here. So we're going to close with a tune that was written by Joe Zavanul, the great pianist from Vienna, who, of course, played with Cannonball Adderley for so many years. And we're going to hear Joe on piano with Bob Cranshaw on bass, Roy McCurdy on drums, and Clifford Jordan, one of my favorites, on tenor saxophone. And they're going to do a tune. We all wish for this, and we all really need it if we live in Vancouver. And the tune is called Money in the Pocket.
Uh-huh. That's something we all need. Money in the pocket. That's the name of that tune written by Joe Zavanul and played by Mr. Zavanul at the piano, Bob Cranshaw on bass, Roy McCurdy on drums, and I forgot to mention Blue Mitchell on trumpet and Clifford Jordan, one of the great Chicago tenor players on tenor saxophone. Money in the pocket. That's from an album of the same name by Joseph Zavanol. We'd like to thank you uh, once again very much for being out there this evening for another edition of The Jazz Show. Next week, our jazz feature is, in my mind, one of my all-time favorite Sonny Rollins albums, and it's called Work Time, and it was issued on Prestige Records, and it marked um, a breakthrough for Sonny. Um, he had just come back from a sabbatical in Chicago to uh, change his lifestyle and so on. And, of course, the, uh, this album was uh, recorded upon his return to his hometown of New York City. And uh, it's one of Sonny's great albums. And that's going to be our jazz feature next week, Work Time with drummer Max Roach and company. Sonny Rollins, still alive. And uh, he just celebrated a birthday just recently, too. Great man. Once again, thanks very much on behalf of The Jazz Show, myself, Gavin Walker, and radio station CITR 101.9, or on your computer for live streaming, www.citr.ca. We'll see you in seven days' time. We are here every Monday evening starting at 9 p.m. Take care. Bye for now.
Thank you.